the most important skill to master in life is to develop a positive relationship to suffering. If you fall in love with suffering, or as I like to say, to suffer well, you will not only be able to handle life when it punches you hard in the face, you will also be able to enjoy the journey on whatever worthy struggle you are pursuing. You know, you've built a business. It wasn't easy. Raising a family, writing a book, uh, running ultramarathons, whatever the worthy endeavor in life, it's going to be hard. But if you fall in love with suffering, you'll be able to enjoy the ride. And it's not inherently pleasant. It's not. That's the nature of suffering. It fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> embrace that. And it's that comes with practice. All right, everybody. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to be talking about fear, suffering, and pain. That's right. Fear, suffering, and pain with an absolute expert who has not just written an insanely awesome book about it called Fearvana, but someone who's actually gone to the depths of suffering to find the gift and the growth out of it. I just made that up. <laughs> Sound good? <laughs> Look, my guest today is awesome, and I'm going to tell you a story about how I met him. But first, really importantly, you know about the free resources. I tell you every week, every week, we just hit over 300 members in the, uh, in the Mental Purpose community on Facebook. It is growing like crazy. You want to get in now. I'm telling you, this episode is coming out the week before Thanksgiving. I think it's about the week, a week before Thanksgiving. We are about to launch... If Aaron and I just didn't pull the trigger already and launch our mental purpose mastermind, you want to get involved in that. It's going to be awesome. We've had so many guys ask us for more, more, more. And guess what? We're about to give it to you. We put something really special together. And so if you are not a part of the mental purpose community on Facebook yet, get over there right now. You know what I always say? Mental purpose, people on purpose, take action. Get over there. Click join. Give us your email address. We're not going to spam you. Just one of the things we like to keep around so we can let you know what's going on with our events and the podcast and stuff like that. So go over to the Mental Purpose community on Facebook. Get signed up right now. Our goal is 1,000 members by the end of the year, which is, you know, it's a tall order. However, it can be done. So uh, get over there, join it. Let's get rolling. And then you get all the information about the Mental Purpose Mastermind. Second thing, obviously, you're listening to the podcast. If you if you haven't yet, please make sure you subscribe to the Mental Purpose Podcast. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. Do your thing there, okay? Now, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, my guest today is Akshay Nanavati. He is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. And I say that and I laugh about it, but it kind of surprised me as I said that because honestly, the guy is... He's not impressive like from an ego standpoint. He, he's just so damn authentic. And the stuff that he does is so like, 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 like extreme that it's, it's massively impressive because he's not doing it to impress you. He's doing it because he wants to. And I think that's the impressive piece. So you guys all know our resident doctor, Dr. A, Dr. B, Dr. Balduzzi, whatever you want to, however you want to call him. Dr. A lives in Scottsdale. I was out in Scottsdale a few weeks ago, and Aaron and I met up with Dr. A at a uh, place called Optimize, which is like infrared sauna, uh, cold plunge, which you know I don't like, those of you that know me. And I met Akshay there, and I got to meet Dr. A's, some of Dr. A's inner circle, which was really awesome. And, you know, I was looking at this book called Fearvana that was up on the shelf. And I didn't know that Akshay wrote this book. 
And I said, man, I'd love to buy one of these. And so he turned around to Aaron and I, who had both grabbed a copy and said, hey, guys, I'm the author. I'll, I'll just I'll give you a copy. So super awesome. He gave us a couple copies and I started reading it uh, just just even like in the car real quick while we were going to dinner. And it was quite profound. Then we get to dinner and uh, the stories that he's telling of tragedy and triumph and suffering and pain and fear and pushing himself were mesmerizing to me and to the rest of the guys at the table who had probably already heard these stories before about what his adventures are and what he's going to do and prepping himself for. So I knew that this is a real man on purpose that I need to have on the show. And before uh, I said, man, I, I got to have you on. Like, I want to ask you so many questions right now, but I just want you to be on when I ask you those questions. I want to have a microphone so the audience gets something too. And he said, well, I'm leaving for Antarctica in like a couple of weeks. If you can get me before then, awesome. So we got him today, recorded it a week before its release or two weeks before its release, whatever. And I'm going to tell you right now, like this episode is mind blowing. I can't even come up with a title that that properly just sets this thing up. Akshay is so damn smart. He's had so many experiences. I'm gonna read you his bio. And I, I don't know, I'm just I was just really I was really in it. I was really impressed by the conversation, his knowledge. And by the way, he talks faster than I do. So you may want to slow the episode down if you're used to listening to it on, you know, one and a half or 1.2. You may want to back it down because he talks faster than I do. But you want to hear everything he has to say because at his level of mastery, the, the, what he comprehends and the way he puts sentences together and the way he th- strings these words together is, is pretty awesome. Pretty damn awesome. So let me read you his bio real quick. So Akshay Nanavati has overcome drug addiction, PTSD from fighting the war in Iraq with the Marines, where literally one of his jobs was to walk in front of vehicles and find bombs. He's overcome depression and alcoholism that pushed him to the brink of suicide. And we're going to talk a lot about suicide, depression, reframing, disease, PTSD, death, relationships, suffering. Uh, literally the brain, the mind, it's wiring, the power of language, habit forming, context, construct, man, it's going to be, this episode is awesome. Um, So since then, he's built a global business. He's run ultra marathons, like a 24 hour run and a 50 miler around a cul-de-sac. He's conducted humanitarian work in post-conflict zones. He spent seven days in darkness, silence, and isolation and he's explored the most hostile environments on the planet from mountains to caves to polar ice caps. It's, I'm telling you, it's wild. And he doesn't even get in. He only scratches the surface on stories he tells us. Uh, combining his life experience with years of research in science and spirituality, he wrote the book Fearvana, which is the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wellness, and happiness. About the book, the Dalai Lama said, yeah, the Dalai Lama, that Dalai Lama said, Fearvana inspires us to look beyond our own agonizing experiences and find the positive side of our lives. Here's the other cool thing. All the profits from the book, 100% go to charity. That's how cool this dude is. So Akshay is now on a mission to help our human family build a positive relationship to suffering in order to create a life of greater meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. No further waiting. Get into this episode. Stop your car. Stop your workout. Do whatever you do. Stop whatever you're doing. You got to listen to this and you got to pick up Fearvana. I love it. I have a couple copies at my house. 
If anybody's in the LA area and you want one, come over. Meet with me. We'll have a conversation around it. It'd be great. We'll have a little book club. We'll fear Vana book club. Anyway, get into the episode. And uh, thanks for listening. All right, Akshay. Dude, you know, it's interesting how um, I always talk about in our coaching program, we have this, this thing called the inner circle and how I, I always encourage people like audit your inner circle like crazy. And for those of you that are list, that have listened to the podcast on the regular, you know, Dr. A is always on. Well, I was in Scottsdale a couple of weeks ago and I reached out to Dr. A to say, hey, man, like we become buddies now through the podcast. I'm just friends outside of it. Uh, I want to meet your inner circle. And he said, cool, man, let's go. Let's do some cold plunging. Let's do some infrared sauna. Let's. And that's how I met you, like randomly at a cold plunge pool in the middle of Scottsdale somewhere. <laughs> And dude, you literally are one of the most fascinating guys I've ever met. I was sitting at dinner with you that night going, what? And Aaron <laughs> and I were like starstruck or awestruck at the level at which you play and your adventures are. And so I immediately, and, and, you're, and dude, and, and the book, like I was going to buy your book, not even realizing you were the author standing right behind me at Optimize. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't putting two and two together. We had just come off that long, you know, retreat. And yeah, was, yeah. But I just, dude, your, your story is, is, is awesome. And I just want you to share that with the audience and your background and your past. And I just have tons of questions for you about like how you operate at that level in this world. That's, that's the best way I can say it, man. It's, I'm just fascinated with you. Well, thank you, brother. I'm honored. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want me so, to just dude, Jump in with my story. Yeah, let's I'll tell you my background, kind of let let got me to who I am today and where where I am now. You know, so I was born in India, moved around a lot at a young age, moved from Bombay to Bangalore to Singapore to Austin, Texas. By the time I was thirteen, and born to a good family, like great family, loved me. We weren't extremely wealthy at the time, but we certainly weren't poor. So I didn't know really any suffering up to this point. You know, didn't have a traumatic childhood or anything like that. When I moved to Austin, Texas at the age of 13, soon after moving, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol, into just this world of self-destruction. I used to cut myself. I still have scars on my arm from burning myself, cutting myself. There are a lot of things that could have- Why was that? I'm just curious. Why was oh, that? Great question. Why, why, you know, was that just the teenage years or was that because of something? You know, my parents have asked this too, like, what could they have done differently? Because again, as I said, I had great parents, not sort of any bad childhood. But, you know, when I moved, I'm moving around a lot from a young age, I was very adaptable. But the sort of double-edged sort of adaptability, like any strength, there's also a shadow with that strength, is impressionability. So I was very impressionable. And I had no sense of clarity as to who I am and who I wanted to be. So when I moved to Austin, I was sort of doing what it takes to fit in, to, to, to be part of a group. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame anybody else. I take responsibility for my behavior. But as a 13-year-old or at this point, 15-year-old child, you're, you're at the effect of your environment a great deal. I certainly didn't have the level of self-awareness I do now, right? So I got into a group of friends that we got into drugs and into alcohol. And as I said, I take responsibility. But had I, let's say, got into a group of friends that were ultra runners, I would have gone into that back then, you know? Yeah. And this happened to be it. So being the person that I am, I pushed it as far as possible. So I, drugs was my vehicle of expression at that point. So back then, you know, me and a friend, we were the first two in our group to start going from just alcohol and marijuana into harder stuff. And that friend is no longer alive today. He OD'd on heroin and died. And I was, I lost two friends like that. And I was heading down that path myself, just very much into a world of self-destruction 
until I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. That movie changed my life. It planted a seed that forever transformed me. After watching the movie, I read the book Black Hawk Down and started reading book after book after book on military and life and combat. And have you ever seen that movie in? Yeah, I have. So scary movie. It's intense. It's uh, horribly intense. But what was so moving about it to me was watching these men who voluntarily voluntarily place themselves in a situation of extreme danger, knowing like particularly that scene where, and of course it's based on a true story where uh, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, two Medal of Honor recipients, the Delta snipers who volunteered to go on the ground to set up a defensive perimeter, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel were heading their way. And they went down anyway to protect the second Black Hawk that had crashed, Michael Durant, who was in that chopper. And both of them died because, again, there were two of them fighting vastly outnumbered outnumbered, and they got killed. But they received a Medal of Honor posthumously for their valor, for making that conscious choice to go down there. And just watching that, it triggered something in me that, I mean, I was left in awe at the capacity of the human spirit, at the courage, the selflessness, the sacrifice of putting yourself in that position in service of some something else and someone else. And uh, delving into the books after that, it just made me question this really worthless, selfish, meaningless, purposeless existence I was living. And almost overnight after that, decided to stop doing drugs and enlist in the Marines. Hmm. It, it took me about a year and a half to get in because I had to get a bunch of medical waivers. I'm a genetic mess. I have flat feet. I have scoliosis. I have a bo- blood disorder that transports less oxygen through my body that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. So it took me a long time to get the medical waivers I needed. And honestly, the only reason I got in because it was a post 9-11 world. So they oh, needed yeah. they needed young, 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 dumb uh, bodies who wanted to be front. <laughs> I was signing up to be Marine Corps infantry as well. Right. So front line. So we'll take whoever we can get kind of thing. But right. I'm grateful for it. It transformed me. And that was the birthplace of what is now Fiorbana. That became the breeding ground of it, because in the Marines, I learned the beauty of suffering. I learned the value of engaging fear, the value of adversity, because, of course, Marine Corps training was hard and I freaking loved it. Like not only did I obviously survive despite what the doctor said, but I thrived. I graduated infantry school as the honor graduate of my platoon. And I loved the suffering, the pain, the struggle, the adversity, the fear that was uh, that was gifted to me in the Marines. And so from there, I started seeking out other avenues to to explore that, to explore ultimately my own soul and the limitlessness of the human spirit that lives within each of us. So nature became my playground. After joining the Marines, I went mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, rock climbing, you know, I mean, you kind of name it. Nature was my playground to go explore and systematically transcend one fear at a time. Because before this, I was terrified of everything, roller coasters, open ocean, terrified of uh, Ferris wheels, forget about even roller coasters, everything scared me, you know? (laughs) So I was systematically confronting those fears until then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine where out there, I had many different jobs. One of my jobs was to walk in front of our vehicle convoys looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. Right. As you imagine, somewhat dangerous job. (laughs) (laughs) Because somebody's going to get blown up first, right? You know, guess who would be? Uh, (laughs) But at this point, I had developed a strong comfort with fear. And, you know, war was obviously not a comfortable environment. It was uh, uh, not not an inherently pleasant or fun environment. But despite the struggles by the end of my deployment, I mean, I remember writing in my journal that I'm really going to miss this place when I go home and I thrived out there. We can even go deeper into that, but just, uh, yeah, 
once I, once I came back to kind of uh, tie a ribbon around the story that led me to fear of Anna is once I came back, you know, I, I struggled with life in this world. I was diagnosed with PTSD, struggled with depression, was at a point in my life drinking like a three quarters of a bottle of like a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka a day and downing this for days on end. And one morning after one of these bin sessions, I woke up and was seconds away from taking a knife and slitting my wrists because I was, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle this pattern of drinking and sobering up, drinking and sobering up. And that moment was rock bottom. That moment was the seed that then led me to delving deep into neuroscience, psychology, and spirituality to initially just to heal myself, but obviously to, to help others navigating suffering. Cause of course I'm not the only person who suffered. How do we, how do we transcend human suffering is the, the fundamental question, which I think humanity has wrestled with. And I don't think we truly have an answer for until, until forever, you know, with, since the beginning of time. And so that was what led me to then obviously sobering up the, the birthplace of Fearvana, reading, reading to the book, leading to the book of Fearvana, to the work that I now do around the business of Fearvana, and ultimately channeling my own darkness, channeling my own demons into running ultra marathons, spending seven days in darkness, climbing mountains, skiing across polar ice caps, and all of that from skiing across Greenland to now where I'm six days away to going to the South Pole, where I'll be spending two months in Antarctica. And uh, but it all started, yeah, with the Marines and then coming out of that, uh, the, the darkness a few times and learning to channel that darkness into an experience of bliss. Yeah, man, there, there's so much in there that I want to dive into. I, I'm just, I don't know where to go. Um, so go back to that. I think about, I have a lot of friends. I have clients that were military members, Marines, Army Rangers. And my curiosity is always like, how do you, how do you not freeze up in those moments when your body, you are in real danger, not like a Ferris wheel danger. Oh, this yeah. thing could fall <laughs> apart. This roller coaster could probably come off or like flying or, or standing on the edge of a cliff. But like your life could be sniped out, blown up, run over, bomb dropped on you at any freaking second. Mm-hmm. Is, it the, is, it, is the body like naturally able or the mind actually naturally able to get through that kind of thing? Or does it take practice? Or what are you you doing mantras? Or how the hell are you able to walk in front of this Humvee knowing that your life could be taken at any moment? You know, a lot of training for sure. Like we spent five months training for a seven deployment, five months full-time training day in, day out. And so we're doing things like, you know, going into simulated war environments with paintball rounds. It's super fun in, in training. Uh, it's horrifically terrifying in, when you, in, in real world application, but in training, you realize how absurdly dangerous urban warfare is, but we trained immensely for it. And not to, not only that, like me personally, I had confronted risk a great deal at this point. By, by the time I was deployed, I used to free climb rock walls without rope, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 foot rock walls that if I fell, I would have, if not in, if not died, definitely horrifically injured myself. I'd broken four bones in three months from rock climbing and skydiving, you know? So by the time I set foot in Iraq, I had confronted fear to such a high degree that it took a lot more for me. And I know this for a fact because we were on missions where people in my same squad would had felt threatened, had felt, you know, an amplified danger versus I was relatively calm. And it's not because I was any braver. It's only because I had put myself in so many risky scenarios that by the time I set foot in, in a war zone, I was comfortable with fear. I was comfortable with danger at a much higher level than many others just because my brain had reference points to, to to attach attach onto when i went into a war zone but you know there's so much that we learn through failure absolutely did you ever, did you ever process like and i was kind of i wanted to ask you this and i'm going to ask you that i wanted to ask you this at dinner 
I'm going to yeah. ask you this today because I wanted the audience to hear it for the first time I hear it. I mean, dude, you learn through failure. Like, how the hell do you wrap your head around? And I'm going to tell you why I think this. I love flying. I love mm-hmm. piling in an airplane. Mm-hmm. I want to get my license again. And I want to start flying here in LA in Southern California because it's just freaking gorgeous. Yeah. And there's a part of me that says, well, you learn from failure a lot. That's not something you want to fail with. So let's just not do it. And my brain goes, you know what? You're right. You're totally right. I got a family. I'm the breadwinner. I got a, and it logically makes sense to me and processes that emotion. And it seems yeah. so damn real. How the hell do you know? I mean, you don't know, but how do you work through that rolling into a mountain climb at 80 feet? Your body is, is processing that. And you're not thinking at all, man, this is uh, this could be it. One slip and it's it. Like I, yeah. I'm just fascinated by that mindset of, of just persevering and getting through that and calming that, that sort of amygdala response, prehistoric brain, keep the body alive. That's just, that's fascinating to me. How do yeah. You, you, you know, you, you build your way up the ladder of risk one step at a time or expand what I call that zone of fear vana. So I didn't free solo the first time I rock got on a rock wall, right? You climb with rope. So, but, but to your point about some of these things like flying or like when I go to Antarctica, the one, well, that's a huge reason why I love these expeditions is that they demand perfection out of you. When you go out there, any, and I've seen it when I was on Denali, I was climbing up in Alaska a few, few months ago. And there was a guy who took his gloves off for probably what is minutes during a windstorm to work with something in his tent and he got frostbite. You know, so there is no room for error out there or the consequences are fatal. And I love that because when the environment demands perfection out of you, you have to transcend who you are now to become someone better. But inevitably, you don't just go into a 30 to 40 day Antarctic expedition on day one, right? Even to go into this expedition, you have to prove your mettle. Like I have to have, I have to, I literally have to show my expedition resume. They call the people I went to Denali with to make sure that I'm someone who doesn't freak out in a situation like this. So even though the environments you can't entirely train for, because in those environments, the consequences are death. So failure means death, right? Or frostbite or losing limbs or something very, very fatal. You can build yourself up to be ready for that environment and ultimately to not make those mistakes that that could have those consequences. So you train your mindset. So like, for example, with training for Denali, I was up in Vermont for three months in the winter up in Vermont training. And when storms would hit, you know, it was a winter. So that we'd have these intense storms. I'd go out and ski in them. I remember one day, this was, uh, this was the towards the end of winter and a brutal was like, it was raining wind. And I was doing a cold river dip in the river out there and it's battering the wind storms, you know, and storm has a ability to induce panic in you. If, uh, I was the only idiot out there, you know, unsurprisingly. So you're completely alone in this environment. Waves are crashing into the rocks and I'm about to go into the cold river and it's like really hitting hard. And it, it hasn't, it can easily induce panic. So I was literally like, literally my mantra was be the eye of the storm, you know, stay centered in the face of external chaos. So point is I was training myself in a relatively, (laughs) I mean, that environment could have gone horribly South as well. I mean, literally I was running on this trail and I mean, I'm talking 10 feet in front of me, this giant tree crashed right in front of me. I mean, had I been going a little faster, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So uh, (laughs) it was a big enough tree that it would have killed me. So point is to say it was relatively safe, but even to get there, I didn't just go out in a Vermont storm first time. I had already done a lot to train myself to even be comfortable there, you know? Yeah, so you're, yeah. you're, you're systematically increasing the, the stressors 
in order to then thrive in those stressors. And then what now becomes, let's say, stress, stressful to somebody else is comfortable for you because you've acclimatized to that level of stress. And to a certain degree, you'll never like you're never going to be entirely um, Antarctica is never going to be entirely friendly, no matter how, you know, but that's the point. I mean, if it was easy, I wouldn't go do it. Right. So that's a big point is I don't, I'm not training to the point to ever become have ever had it become easy. I'm training so I can become stronger to face whatever, whatever adversity these environments throw at me. Yeah. And you, it's, I mean, you go to what we perceive as an extreme, but really all this is, is a training process that anybody can do. Like I remember years ago, I read the book Rejection Proof because mm. even though I'd been in the sales business for my whole life with my dad and then in, in the real estate business, I still was really scared of rejection. Yeah. Now, if you look at people who look at me today and they understand the risks I take in business and the way that I get knocked down and just get back up and like run harder, that's what you're talking about. It all comes from practice and understanding that the hits won't kill you. Exactly. That's in my world though your world, the hits can kill you. <laughs> so is there just a, this, uh, and I want to talk about mantras too, before I forget, but is there like this just inherent or, or built, um, faith that you have that whenever it's your time, it's just going to be your time. Like we kind of talked about that at dinner. It's like, you're going to be alone in, you literally will be alone in the most remote place in the world, the most remote person out there, literally. And I, death could be on your doorstep at any time, literally at any time. And like, are you just at peace with that? Or I mean, how, how do you process that? Because I think I'd be thinking like, fuck, I don't want to die, man. I'm, I'm going to make moves so I don't die. But you can't do that. You have to make moves that keep you looking forward, not thinking about something that could happen. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not unaware of the fact, obviously that I could die and I'm terrified of death. I don't, sure. I'm absolutely terrified. I don't want to die. I love, love, love my life. I have so much sure. to live for so much more. I want to do after every expedition. So I'm terrified of death, but that's the beauty of it. These experiences force you to confront your own mortality. And by doing so, by embracing this fear of death, by engaging the fear of death, it awakens the true gift that is life. You cannot really know the power of life unless you've confronted death. And I've been blessed to have not just walked away from it on multiple occasions. Like when I was in Iraq, my vehicle drove over an active bomb that for some reason didn't explode. I've almost been killed by a falling boulder while ice caving in the Himalayas, seconds away from it. I mentioned this incident in Vermont. I was in a, when I spent one month dragging a 190 pound sled for 350 miles across Greenland in brutal polar storms, the likes of which I'll experience in Antarctica. The following year, a British explorer was killed in, this, in such storms. I've lost friends to addiction, to suicide, to war. I've been on the verge of my own suicide. I still face death. So point, point of all that is to say is that by being face-to-face -face with death, it transforms how you engage with life. It brings an intensity of fire, a passion, and enthusiasm for life that is very alluring, very addicting, and very profound. And so I do these things not to... Uh, not, I mean, I'm not like not people often think to sort of sometimes people say like, do you have a death wish or uh, like they, they think I'm not scared of dying because I go face death. And that's not true at all. Like the fear of death is one of the most profound, powerful experiences, one of the most powerful um, things to, to engage with because of what it does to 
life. That's the value of engaging death is ultimately not death itself. Like death is the means to awaken true life. And fear, when you develop a positive relationship to fear, the fear of death, because I've often heard like in, in spirituality, you know, don't be scared of dying. It's, it's natural. And I get it. I get where that's coming from. But I think it's missing out on the what the fear of death. When you develop a positive relationship to fear, you realize the fear of death is one of the most profound things you can possibly experience. And I want to be afraid of death because for one, it also helps me better prepare. Like because I am scared of dying, I am doing, I'm training like a savage for these expeditions. I'm going to Antarctica this year to prepare for the crossing next year. I'm doing expeditions in the Arctic. I'm going above and beyond with the level of training because I'm so scared of dying and I don't want to die. You know, so the fear of death, it just, it just fuels you to prepare, but it also awakens life and it pushes you harder to live each day with a greater enthusiasm and intensity and fire than you possibly could without having known and come face to face, face to face with the presence of death. You know, what's interesting is I, I've talked to a lot of, a lot of guys, especially on this podcast, but in my personal life, I've talked to a lot of men who have been on the verge of, or, or like at the door of suicide and to talk to them today, like to talk to you today as, as motivational as you are, like determined and driven. I, I wonder, can you, can you kind of break down? Cause obviously I know that there's tens of thousands of people that listen to this show, maybe hundreds of thousands, but you know, in years to come, I don't know, but like there's somebody on this listening that said that it is in that space, in their mind, like life's not worth it. And they don't understand your story or other guys' stories who have been in those trenches and now are like about to, to cross Antarctica or walk 350 miles across Greenland and face death when death was literally like your only out, your only yeah. way to actually yeah. feel better. Yeah. Now death is a totally different way to experience life. Like the, yeah. the chance of dying. And I, I just, I want to know your association with that because that's a very juxtaposed place to be. Yeah. You're, you're going from like, fuck, I can't take this cycle. I'm about to kill myself to I'm going to put myself on the edge of death, be as prepared as possible, be as, as flawless as possible to not die. That's a really crazy place to like just to, to, to transverse like that's a yeah. that's an antarctica to transverse if you think about it that's, that's really far so i don't even know what my question is dude I, I just think that's really interesting and like how does somebody comprehend that yeah if they're in that place now that they can get to a place by shifting what by changing their what by yeah. trying this awesome 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 awesome, awesome question so when you're in that space, and this is something that people like when someone's really in, in, in the low and someone wants to help that person, they often try to share stories like mine or share something inspiring. And, and again, I don't say that with an ego, but the point is that when you're really in that space and an inspiring story can be very destructive because it only makes you feel shittier about who you are. That's what I mean. Yeah. And this was very important for me. Like when I was, this was a interesting realization for me and also now helping others, not just who are in the darkness, but helping family who wants to help other, their own family members who are in the darkness. So point is to say, when you're in that space, you want to be wary about going to seek out sources of inspiration because you are going, it's going to make you feel really shitty about yourself. Now there's a time for it. Like today, now I seek out inspiration because it drives me to be better, but you have to kind of navigate. Like if you're going from zero to 10, zero is I'm on the verge of suicide. And then 10 is I'm an absolute master of my craft. Life could not be better. The, the, the movement from zero to two is very different than two to four and four to six and six to eight and eight to 10 and so on and so forth. The movements are different. So let's start with, okay, zero to two. How do we navigate yeah. that? The first step when you're like, what was 
invaluable for me, and this is easier said than done, which I get, is is to recognize and to start practicing and training the disidentification from the emotion and from the experience. Because what happens is, and I'll give you an example, like I was working with one kid who used to say things like, I am depressed because some person, some therapist, in my opinion, terribly labeled, like missed, you know, just a horrible decision, labeled her with depression. So what happens is when people go through this, we'll say things like, I am depressed. I have depression. I am sad. Like it becomes their self-identity. You know, I've heard somebody say that the two most powerful words in the English language are I am, because what you attach onto that becomes who you are. And the, and this is easier said than done. I get it. And I'm not saying it happened to me overnight because when I, when I hit rock bottom, I didn't magically change and get better overnight. It was a slow climb out of that abyss, right? I had to, it, I broke my sobriety multiple times after that. So it didn't, it didn't, I don't want to be very clear. It didn't magically change. Like it wasn't super simple snap. Everything gets good. But the starting point was, and I'll give you concrete examples to elaborate on this was recognizing to disidentify myself from the experiences, from the thoughts, the feelings that I was experienced, that I was going through to fully, fully, fully grasp and to train it. It comes with training to recognize that I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my experiences. I am the thinker of my thoughts. I am the feeler of my feelings. I am the experiencer of my experiences. So there is a space between what is and who we choose to be outside of what is. Most of us are not aware of that space. I had to train in building that space. So I'll give you a very, again, concrete example. When I came back from the war, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I was told because I struggled with survivor's guilt. I lost a close friend of mine to the war. I didn't like being in crowds. I was jumpy with loud noises. These were all symptoms of quote-unquote post-traumatic stress disorder. As I started delving deep into the study of the brain, I started to recognize that being jumpy with loud noises was not a disorder. I spent seven months in a war zone where loud noises equals death. Inevitably, my brain was more hypervigilant than the average person. I struggled with survivor's guilt. Everybody, friends, family, therapists, I get it. Again, it all came from a place of love. Don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. And I get it. Like, look, war, war happens the way it happens. Nobody can control the bullets fly where they fly. But they were trying to say, and we do this all the time. Don't be scared. Don't, be, don't, don't worry. Don't fear. Don't stress. Don't, uh, don't feel guilty. We say, don't feel what you feel, right? And the reality is guilt was not bad. It's not a bad emotion. Guilt was purely an expression of love. The reason I yeah. felt guilty was because of the camaraderie that I had built with my brothers in the Marines. So as I started to recognize all this, I started to release the label of disorder and started to learn that post-traumatic stress is not indicative of post-traumatic stress disorder. There are two very different things. And by releasing the label of disorder, I, was start to, I started to release that identity from who I was. Because what happens is, and uh, well, what happens is when people... We've created a, a paradigm uh, uh, in society that trauma equals disorder, war equals trauma equals disorder. And, there's actually, and this is proven, like Dr. Martin Seligman, he's one of the leading researchers in the positive psychology movement. He went to West Point, the military academy, asked the cadets, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? Something like 5% raise their hands. Yeah. He asked them, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? And it was like 95%. It's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. We believe that we go there and we're not doing this consciously, of course, but we start to believe that that's what happens. And to this day, when someone hears I'm a veteran there, and I, I get it, it's coming from a place of love, but there's often this sort of pity that, oh, poor you, like there's something wrong with you because you've seen that experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So individually, as well as collectively, we've created a paradigm that trauma or adversity equals disorder. And that paradigm is deeply flawed. So the starting point was releasing what I call the second darts. And I'll explain what that means. So in, in Buddhism, the Buddha once said that we're all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. 
The first start is the one we don't control. And neuroscience backs this up as well. We don't control most of what happens in our brain. I couldn't control the fact that I was jumpy with loud noises. My brain learned to associate that as a survival mechanism, very valid survival mechanism. Same thing today. While you and me are chatting in this room and somebody comes in with a gun, I'm not going to choose to feel fear. My brain's going to respond. Right. So the first dart is the thing we don't control. The second dart is the thing we do on top of all those things. So for example, if I stub my toe against a door, the first dart is the pain in the toe. It's, it's there. The second dart is when I start saying things like this door is stupid. God hates me. Bad things only happen to me. You know, this house is stupid. And we do this with our emotions too. So post-traumatic stress, I could not control. Yes, I had that response. But what I can control is the attachment of the disorder. The second dart is the label of disorder. Another example, and I'm painting the example just to make this concrete. I went climbing with a friend and it was, it was not like an intensive vertical climb. It was kind of a scramble. And she, she got like super nervous on this climb, right? She was terrified, like gripping the wall. We eventually got to the top, came back down, started driving away and chatting about it. And she started saying, you know, you had no fear. Like what was wrong with me? Why did I feel scared? And she started beating herself up for feeling fear. The only reason I did not have fear on that scramble was because I was a climber. I had done a lot tougher climbs, not because I was any braver. My brain had different references than hers. As someone who didn't climb, she didn't have those references, so she was scared. And it took no courage on my part to climb because I didn't have fear. You can only have courage with fear. So it took courage on her part to transcend that fear and keep climbing. But the real problem was those second darts, the beating yourself up after that. And that's how we navigate those low motion. When you're in that low point, you're going to feel low. You're going to feel depressed. You're going to feel struggle. You're going to feel pain. Nothing I or anybody can say can make that go away. You're going to have to navigate that. That's the harsh, but the reality. And if you're, and, and that's also one of the biggest problems is we do everything we can to get to the, to, to get to the other side of pain in the quickest, easiest way possible. Like somebody asked me in one interview, they, they gave me a scenario. What if somebody's going through divorce? What would you do in this scenario? I said, regardless of the scenario you paint me, the fundamental problem is we are looking for the quickest, easiest, least painful way out of the problem. Totally. That's the problem. Yeah. And if yeah. you do that, you are setting yourself up for a lifetime of misery. So you're going to have to suffer. The core, as you know, from we, our conversation, the core ethos of Firvana and who everything I am is developing a positive relationship to suffering, right? So embrace the isness of that pain and recognize that you don't have to be defined by those second darts. So release that, okay, it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel fear. It's okay to feel stress. There's nothing wrong with you just because you have it. It doesn't mean it's a disorder, you know, like embracing the isness of what is, because when you do that, it releases the constriction of trying to fight that emotion because the world told you, you should be fearless or don't be scared. And dude, the top guys in the personal development realm, I'm not going to name names, but the biggest names, I see them say things like, how to help, how, here's how to eliminate your anxiety. And it is so destructive because what happens is, yeah, is. then when somebody feeling the anxiety, they think, oh, Joe Schmo expert there said I shouldn't feel it. So there's something wrong with me for feeling it. And they go down that second dark syndrome, this downward spiral of beating themselves up instead of saying, okay, hey, it's cool. It's human. I can feel this emotion. Now, what do I do with it? How do I channel it into my purpose? So once you, once you release that identity, and I'll pause because I know I've been talking for a minute, <laughs> but the- <laughs> Next step there is channeling it into what I call your worthy struggle, your per your path, your purpose, your mission, because you cannot just leave it in a void. A lot of guys I know who've came out of addiction without channeling it into something else, the void will inevitably go when the darkness hits, they went back to addiction and they died. You know, they I've lost people that way. So you can't leave that void. It has to be the the pain of whatever you've gone through, the darkness. Like I don't the the struggles I've gone through, they, don't, they haven't gone away. I still feel survivor's guilt. I feel, still feel guilt, but I just learned to channel it. Like, for example, and then I'll stop, stop my rant after this. Um, you know, when, when I learned all these things that I'm sharing, I, I put a picture of my friend that I lost, up in the, uh, lost in the war up on my wall. And it said, this should have been you. 
earn this life. Mm-hmm. And my guilt, it didn't go away. It became my ally. Yeah. Just reframe though. It's a total reframe. Reframe. Exactly. I've got to, I've got to go back because a lot of stuff you said. So step one is recognize and start training the disassociation and disidentification of my myself from the feelings, thoughts, and experiences. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my team to pull the exact thing that you said so we can write that out for the show notes. And then the second one was channel the pain into a worthy purpose. Well, before even channeling the pain, accept and embrace the pain. Like the stop, try, don't run away from the suffering. Don't beat your, like, again, another example, I was doing an interview. I was very blessed to interview Dr. Drew and somebody called in on the interview. She had gone through PTSD because of the Boston bombing. And so she was asking for some support around that. So, you know, we both were kind of helping. And at one point I said, okay, the next time you feel the trigger of post-traumatic stress rise up, I just want you to kind of pause and notice it. And she goes, that's really hard. And I go, I know it's hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard. But the thing is, and it's not her fault. Like, this is not a, anything bad about her. It's, it's, it is hard. But she wanted to get to the other side of all of this stuff without going through that. And you just cannot. Yeah. Like, you, the, the way through the pain is the way on the other side of the pain is through the pain is to be the pain. So accept it. And that's why the most important skill to master, like the most important skill to master in life is to develop a positive relationship to suffering. If you fall in love with suffering, or as I like to say, to suffer well, you will not only be able to handle life when it punches you hard in the face, you will also be able to enjoy the journey on whatever worthy struggle you are pursuing. You know, you've built a business. It wasn't easy. Raising a family, writing a book, uh, running ultramarathons, whatever the worthy endeavor in life, it's going to be hard. But if you fall in love with suffering, you'll be able to enjoy the ride. And it's not inherently pleasant. It's not. That's the nature of suffering. It fucking sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> embrace that. And it's that comes with practice. You know, it's interesting this goes back to the inner circle and this is going to sound light compared to what we're talking about. And I'm going to go deep in a second. I just want to point this out. There's a lot of suffering that happens in my body when I think about getting into cold water and you watched me for the first time, get into a cold bath, probably for the first time in about three years, because I've been building it up in my head about how terrified I am of cold water and how I don't love it because I have trauma from my, when I was a kid and I was a uh, a, a swimmer and I got pushed into cold water every day and like the, by the coaches and they were yelling and all these things trigger. And then I, I forget his name. Mike said to me, it's okay. Like, I'm going to give you a process now. And I'm like, Oh, it's okay. And he's like, no, it is. It's going to be just fine. But he didn't make me do it. Yeah. He gave me different context around it. Yeah. He made me understand the suffering that I was going to be going through. And he said, look, man, I'm going to give you three steps. Ready? Here's this one. Then one of them was, I'm going to give you a mantra. And the last one is, I just, I just, I just want you to listen to the beat of the drum. Like we're going to get you in the water today. He didn't make it a, you got to do it. And he didn't make it a choice. He just gave me this context to where I could exist in that context. And the fear actually wasn't as present and the suffering wasn't as, as death defying as it was in my brain. And so he just ran, went and got his drum and came over and he was like, come on, man. And you, you guys were sitting there watching me. Yeah, He's yeah, like, come on, yeah. let's, uh, <laughs> just uh, here. This is how you do it. Just walk up here uh, one foot at a time. Don't slip. Uh, you don't have to put your shoulders in if you don't want. Just mm-hmm. now follow the drum and count to three and say your, after, and say your uh, mantra. And all of a sudden, I'm fucking shoulder deep in cold water. Yeah. And my process in my brain wasn't, this sucks. My process was, holy shit. It worked. Wow. And then I started processing, okay, 
I need to get back in cold water now because I have a different context of the relationship of this fear and suffering now that this guy changed in a moment. So I want to go back for a second to PTSD. I talk to a lot of guys who call me and say, hey, man, I have PTSD. Can you help me work through it? I go, no, no, I'm not a psychologist. I'm an expert level coach, but I'm not a psychologist. If you're looking for that, that's not me. Can I help you? Yes. Will you believe me? No, because you want to see the pieces of paper on the wall. Can you, can you navigate through and evolve out of PTSD in your opinion? 100%. I think the key is like, in, like recognizing post-traumatic growth is as much of a reality, if not more than post-traumatic stress disorder. The problem is the attachment of disorder. Like it's, there, there are neurological factors for sure that at a very, very, very heightened level of stress that some people have gone through where it's genuinely like so, so, so dam- damaging. And this is going to be like controversial. Some people are going to say for sure, but most of us have post-traumatic stress, not post-traumatic stress disorder. Most of us who even are labeled with post-traumatic stress disorder, we throw out that label so fucking arbitrarily and it's destructive. I don't say this. I say this with pure love because I want people to release that label and to recognize, look, I got post-traumatic stress. Yes. Maybe it's the, you know, it's, and it's sure. I got some responses to post-traumatic stress, but if I can let go of that disorder attachment to it, I can recognize that post-traumatic growth is, is as much of a reality, if not more. So really recognize, and this, this comes back to reframing a relationship to suffering, to trauma, that realizing that the greatest, the greatest growth that, is, that happens in our lives comes from suffering. It comes from the darkness. It comes from knowing the demons. Like I always like to say, one of my many mantras is the, uh, the greater your demons, the greater the divinity required to rise above them. You know, so it's, it's the greater, the, the, the more darkness you've experienced. And I've experienced this viscerally from the darkness retreat. We, we talked about this, I think, when we, when we met, you know, when I came out of the yeah. darkness and I saw the light, I had never seen the light that looked that way in my entire life. Because after seven days in darkness, the light was, the right light was revealed to me in a way that I could not have known unless I had been in the dark. In the dark. Yeah. And so the key is to start recognizing that whatever suffering we've gone through, it's a fucking gift, man. And it's hard to get it when you're really in it. God knows I get that. If somebody's listening and really in it, you're going to be, it's like, it's like, you're thinking what, well, this is not a gift at all. Like, you know, I get it. But when you, when you start falling in love, like now when it happens, I embrace it all of it because now, even if it's a suffering, I didn't choose, obviously going to Antarctica is a suffering I'm choosing. And I'm not unaware of the fact that I'm blessed to be able to choose my suffering. But even when it's thrown upon me, I'm now able to, because I've trained in it to recognize that even this is a gift but that comes with practice. We can go into a very different place here. I'm not, but I'm not going to go there. I want to, I talk to so many people. I'm listening to you say like we throw the word disease or um, uh, disorder around, which is so true. No one's ever heard of PTS. No one's ever heard of PTS. It's PTSD. Like if you said to someone, well, do you have PTS from war? And they'd be like, well, I have PTSD. Exactly. So we're not, I, I want to be very clear. We're not discounting anything that people are experiencing. Not what at all. What we're saying is there's a different relationship with trauma. Trauma is going to be there. We, we, uh, my my um, a friend of mine from Baltimore reached out to me this morning. He said, hey, man, I was listening to your episode uh, with, um, I forget who it was. It was on like childhood trauma from messed up parents, right? I forget the name of the episode, but. And he said, like, I never realized that trauma wasn't a like it could be a good thing. Like trauma could come from a good source. It could be too much love or too much candy or too much of this, not always associated with bad. But if you think about all the patterns that we have for our lives, most of us, 
most of the things that we do are distracting us from the traumas and the bullshit that come up in our minds every day. Whether it's from a recent trauma from college or a job that you got fired from and you were traumatized because you tripped and fell and everybody laughed at you on the way out and called you a loser, that's trauma. Or the way your parents talked to you or interacted or whatever it might be, your present moment is dealing with those things. And the, the, what Aaron and I call angles of avoidance, the distraction methods that you have, which there are a lot of, those are you distracting yourself from dealing with the shit. And what you're saying is, just like, I think I told you this when we were at dinner, the shaman, when I did, the first time I did ayahuasca, she looked at me and she goes, dude, you're, you're uh, like, you're white as a ghost and you're shaking. And I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to die tonight. She goes, well, if you die tonight, then you have no more problems. And I'm like, yeah, but how do you sound so clear about that? And she's like, because if you die tonight, you will have no more problems in your mind and in your feelings. You will have no more of that. You will be free. Now, if you want to, you drink this and you will go through and get out. But the only way out is through. Yeah. You cannot skip steps here. So if you die tonight, it was your time. Be at peace with that and drink this medicine or don't drink this medicine, but don't complain that you have to still keep going through this, even though you want out. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay. <laughs> and I drank yeah. it and I learned a lot from it. And it scared the, it, it scared me so badly, but I didn't want to keep making excuses and detours around the fucking mountain that I knew I needed to climb. I couldn't. You just take that to extreme now, but the book and like, I've been reading the book. I'm a very slow reader. You're probably like, I give it to you three weeks ago. It's, it's fascinating. The research that you have in there, I encourage everybody to go out and get your book fear Vana F E A R V A N A. It's like, dude, I, 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 it's like you're speaking the language that I speak in my head about myself and the way that I help myself to be able to help other people. And I want to, I mean, I want to get your thoughts on, on diseases that people say are diseases like alcoholism. And again, to the audience, I'm not, I'm, this is not like, I'm just getting Akshay's opinion. That's all. I just want your opinion because I have my own thought process around it. What is your thought process on alcoholism being a disease? However, workaholism isn't a disease. Yeah. But gambling is a disease. Drugs are a disease. Uh, porn is a disease. But workaholic is not a disease. Why is that? When all of them have to do with avoiding your trauma. Yeah. At the base, at the base level. Yeah, and I love that. <laughs> so I resonate with, uh, with you, I think, <laughs> tremendously on this. But let's delve a little deeper. So with, let's okay, let's see alcoholism. There are neurological forces that make some people, I've delved a lot into the research on this. Um, sure. And I'm not, you know, I don't claim to obviously know it all. I'm not an expert. I know what I know from experience as well as from my research. Um, that there's neurological forces that contribute to some people being more prone to having an addictive nature, right? Like they've shown that an alcoholic will often have like dopamine receptors that are kind of flawed and therefore they seek it more and they're more prone to get into things like alcoholism and drugs. Now, the so I probably I have never put my brain in a brain scan, but I would I would venture to bet money that I have some dopamine receptors that are all kinds of fucked up in there, not just because of alcohol. I mean, look at the shit that I do, right? Like I do some pretty intense, intense things. So there's all kinds of brain wiring. But here's the reality is that when we attach words, just like what I was saying earlier to disease to it, it completely changes the construct on how we operate around that. Now, look, we don't 
control most of what happens in our brain, but we can change our brain. That's a neurological fact. It's called the science of neuroplasticity. The brain is plastic, meaning that the brain is malleable. We can change it. When we attach the word disease onto it, like, okay, this is a, this is a key thing. So now people often say, okay, if alcoholism isn't a disease, then what about someone who's got like cancer? You know, it's just as much a disease as that is. And I get where you're coming from, but here's a distinction between the brain and every other organ in the body. Every other born organ in the body, it is not uh, now, again, we can go delve deep into this. Some people say there's a consciousness in the gut and the heart and all that kind of stuff. But the brain, think of the brain as two separate entities. There's the mind and the brain. The brain, the physical brain is this physical piece of meat in your skull, right? The mind is consciousness. And the brain changes the mind just as much as the mind changes the brain. Meaning that if my brain has like the physical structure has some dopamine wiring that's flawed, it's going to change how my consciousness operates. And this has, again, been proven. Like, as an example, they did one study, which I talk about in the book, um, that on London taxi drivers. They had a larger hippocampus, which is the part of the brain associated with memory, because apparently the London streets are quite complex, and so they have to memorize these streets, and therefore they're part of the brain associated with memory, was physically larger than other people. So are, we can physically change the structure of our brain through conscious effort, and vice versa, the physical structure of our brain will affect our consciousness. So the point of this is to say is that when we... Most of us are not consciously changing our brain. It's happening for us as we go through the experience of life. But when you start building that space that we talked about earlier, the space between what is and who you choose to be outside of what is, you recognize that you do not have to be defined by the patterns of your brain. So yes, my brain might have different wiring, but certainly has different wiring than, than yours, than everybody. We are all born with different genetics and we can choose to be victimized to that. And say, oh, poor, woe is me, right? Like I'm flat feet, I have scoliosis, I have blood disorder, I've got fucked up dopamine receptors, I'm a giant mess, right? <laughs> or I can say, this is awesome. Like I'm grateful for all this shit because it's pushed me to a level to become someone I never, I have to work harder in order to attain a certain level of athletic mastery because of all this shit. And I fucking love that. Like that drive, the fight is what it's all about. So coming back to the question about, is it a, is it a disease? The, 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 the challenge is, if you choose to label it as such, it completely changes your construct around it. And that construct shapes your reality. Words have a lot of power. They shape our emotions. They've also done studies on this. When I say I am depressed, it will change how I feel versus if I were to say I'm a little down today. You know what I mean? How we, how the words we, yeah. yeah, the words we yeah. use for our experience shape our experience and vice versa, right? So the point is that's why I do, I do not resonate. And some people look, if it's worked for you, great with the sort of a thing of, you know, I'm an alcoholic. Like why in the fuck would I label myself an alcoholic? Yeah, I, I would know. never, in, I've never in a million years say that I don't even say I had PTSD, you know, I mean, sometimes it might slip out in a conversation, a stream, but went to myself, I was diagnosed with PTSD, which is true, but I don't have it. That's not, I'm not like going to label myself with that. I am whoever I choose to become, you know, yeah. so that distinction. And that's why I don't like the, the assignment of that word. Um, and this does not mean this is another point to bring up because sometimes when, when people say like, it doesn't mean you're ignoring reality. When I say like, sometimes I've, when I've talked about this labeling thing, people are like, are you just then like ignoring? No, it's like these two forces can coexist. I can acknowledge the isness of something. Like, let's just say, okay, I have thalassemia. I have a dopamine wiring, right? It's there. Yeah. But I'm not going to make it real by putting it out into the world, putting it out to myself. I'm not, I'm not unaware it's not there. So when I say somebody's struggling with drinking, yes, there are people who are more prone to addiction than others. Neurologically, that's a sort of verifiable fact. But I, so I can acknowledge that, accept that, but I'm not going to make it real by, defi by defining it and making it my identity because then it fuels into that. It makes it that much more real. So that's why I don't, um, 
use that. And we, I mean, even if you go deep into the nature of trauma, like what makes a traumatic experience traumatic? What is trauma? So if you, if you release all words, like every time we attach words onto an experience, onto a thing, we are attaching a conceptual thought to it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's context. Yeah, exactly. The power of language. Exactly. Now, when you release all conceptual thought, when you release all content context, there is uh, and it's an imperceptible moment, but there's an imperceptible space between pure experience and your context that you attach onto it. The constructs at a very simplistic level. When I see a red door, how do I know it's red? What is red? Red is a color. I've been taught that that thing equals red. And so when I see a red door, I'm thinking red. But what if I didn't know it was red? There's a pure, imperceptible, hard to even fathom moment between pure experience and between pure isness and every construct we attach onto it. And the constructs we attach shape our reality. So when we say disease, when we say trauma, when we say depression, when we say sadness, when we say happiness, when we say any word, we are creating a construct around this experience, around this emotion, around this thought that shapes our reality. And the key thing is you got to be very, very, very careful what those constructs are because those constructs shape your reality. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. But this goes back to inner circle again. You've got to be very aware. And I did not intend to do this, but I was just thinking, I was like, wow, man, like that's so important. I, 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 I'm thinking like your inner circle is so supportive of what you're doing. What would it be like if your inner circle was like, you're what you're going to Antarctica? Are you fucking mind? You're, are you an idiot? What would that do to <laughs> I, I you? I get that too. <laughs> if, if, like, I watched your inner circle. Like. I watched Anthony, Dr. A, for those of you, or Dr. A, Dr. B, whatever I call him on here. It's, 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 it's Dr. Somebody. Um, I, I watched him and, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. Trevor, no, yes. Trent. 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 I'm, walk, I'm, watching, I'm watching him and Trent formulate these, these pills suspended in this for additional that while you're on your trek so you don't have to do this and you could just pop it you don't have to mix it so you don't have to yeah. t- like i'm like wow man that's a hell of an inner circle it's a hell of an inner circle mm-hmm. but i it what what you said in terms of context and language pattern it sounds so damn simple but it is the it is the vicious cycle that most human beings run in is these is these contexts from language that they put their life into themselves into their friends their group their family their job their money their everything into and they just exist in this little world it's yeah. like the crabs in the bucket like it, it yeah. the, the words are the crabs and they just kind of keep yeah. you at a certain level yeah. but i was talking to a friend of mine and, and he said man like you don't know what it's like you don't have a disease like this and i said bro i was diagnosed with crohn's disease but i don't have crohn's disease like you said it's something i yeah. was diagnosed with yeah it's like but how do you not why are you denying that? He said, like, I am an alcoholic. It's a disease that I have. And I said, no. And this is my opinion, audience. So just chill out. <laughs> my, you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of AA stuff with, with family members and, and a lot of friends of yeah. mine. And I've been to a lot of meetings to support them and researched a lot. Like, why can't it be the context of in order to solve the challenges in my head and the feelings in my body, I use this thing? Because like I asked you earlier, it's alcohol, it's gambling, it's drugs, it's porn, it's sex, it's work, it's running, it's exercise, it's going to the gym 18 times a week. Like it's all those things to combat, distract from, or avoid the things that we got to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Our past. So why can't, why can't an alcoholic not be an alcoholic, but someone who chooses to use alcohol 
to combat the, the pain or feelings or thoughts that they're feeling in that moment about something that has happened or hasn't happened or happened in their past? Why can't that be it? And I know you agree with that. Yeah. And I feel you. And it's like, simple, can it? It, the, the challenges. And again, there's going <laughs> to, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this from somebody, I'm sure, but it's very alluring to be a victim. So when you say, dude, you don't yeah. get me, you're saying, no, you don't get, and dude, I can't tell you how often I hear this. And fuck, I've been through it, man. No, man, nobody knows my pain. You're, you guys, nobody gets it. I'm like, like, but it's very alluring to be a victim because look, there's a double-edged sword to taking responsibility for your life. On the one hand, if your life isn't the way you look, guess whose fucking fault it is? It's on you. That's dark. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's hard to admit. But the beautiful side is if your life isn't get where you want it to be, guess who gets to create it? You. So there's an empowerment to that, but there, it, it's very alluring to be a victim. So it's easier in some ways like, man, hey, nobody gets me. My life sucks. It's like like the world is out to get me. So no, like I'll stay in that space because then it, 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 it's, it's a way to justify my existences and how I want to be. And it's not my fault. So it's very alluring. And that's Again, this is a hard thing to say to someone who's in it. They're like often like I, I have no doubt somebody might who either might listen to this or even people tell me like, fuck you, you don't get me. I'm not a victim. And here's the thing. If you choose to stay into that, like you're going to it's 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 uh, you know, it's on you. But the thing is, and this is this is the hard part coming back to the constructs we were talking about is it's really hard for people to see that the world they see you have to like recognize the world we see is not we're not engaging with reality as it is. We are not engaging with the world. We are engaging with the world through our lens of reality. Yeah. Very simply, think if like if I'm wearing red glasses, I could look at a green tree, but the, the tree is still going to look red. Yeah. So yeah. the constructs with which we view the world are mental models, our beliefs, our, our perspectives about reality. And those constructs shape our reality. Now, for so many of us, and I can't tell you how many people I engaged with like this, some of the people who are closest to me in my life, and it's sad to see sometimes, they don't see it as a construct. They don't see it as a lens. They'll say, no, this is how the world is. But instead of saying, this is not how the world is, this is how I see the world, this is my lens of the world. And that is how you start changing is to start recognizing that I don't see reality as it is, I start seeing it as a construct. And a simple way to do that, to make it practical, how does one do this? I literally, like all the time, recognize, acknowledge, use a mantra, I am seeing, I'm, I'm not engaging with reality, I'm engaging with my lens of reality. You know, so I use, and this goes to, this goes way deep into lucid dreaming and a separate concept, but some of mine is I am the dreamer in this dream. Like I'll say that when I get into my car, I'm a dreamer in this dream. So what I'm acknowledging and pausing to notice to myself is that reality, quote unquote, reality, all of it, the green trees I see when I'm driving, all of it, it's a dream reality. It's not real. There's, it's a construct. Everything is a construct. Now, look, this doesn't mean the tree's not there. This doesn't mean if I don't crash into a tree, I'm not going to die. Yeah, it's, it's there. But so you, and you have to wrestle with the duality of this is that, if I jump off a building, it's there, but how I, how I, how, I mean, I will die. How, how I see the world, the, the space between the tree being green and, and the, and the, and the pure isness of it, that's all a construct. And when I start training myself to see reality and me as the dreamer in this, this quote unquote reality that's creating, I can start separating myself from the, the fact that it is, that the world isn't real and everything I engage with is, a, is a construct as simple as when I see a doorknob, I don't think about how to open the door. I know how to open the door, right? I just walk up to it. I know, but well, how do I know? Because that construct has been taught to me yeah. and I'm not saying you need to do this all the time. Cause it'd be highly dysfunctional to like pause to be, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes you just want to move through the day, but the more you train, like, especially if you're just starting out, train yourself in this all the time. You're getting in your car, use, use triggers, use getting the car. I'm the dreamer in this reality. Re reality isn't real. You walk out the door, you're standing in line to get coffee. 
recognize, look around and pause to notice that you are not engaging with reality. You are engaging with your lens of reality. And what this does is the more you train yourself in this, the more you will start to release yourself from all constructs in order to create more empowering ones. So the next time you're going through a dark moment, next time something life happens, you will start to see, oh, wait, I'm just, it's my, my mental models around it. My perspective around it is shaping that reality, but it's not inherently real. You know, I mean, that's why we know like two people can go through the same exact scenario. One people can, one person can be smiling, embracing it, falling in love with it. And the other person can talk about how the world sucks and everything is horrible because same reality objectively, externally, but different reality internally. Right. So we have to recognize that space. Yeah. But that's, I mean, if you look at it for the times that I accidentally catch the news, this is the general consensus among the population, the general population, the vast population is that. All these people are this. All those people are that. If you're this, that's that. If you're not that, that's this. And I'm like, what the fuck? How can people think that generally? Like, how does somebody, how does someone go to the polls and go, yes, that person, and no matter who it is, I'm not talking about like the horrible human beings that we've had in, in elected offices lately. I'm talking about just any of these, these, these characters. How does somebody go to the polls and go, that guy's going to do a great job? He thinks that the all of these people are X. He's going to be great for our society. How the, I, and the, the way that I say that or think or process through that, I go, oh, no, they, they literally are looking at this through that lens, same lens that this guy looks at it through and thinks yeah. that all of these people are ruining our country. And you're like, what the fuck? Is this for real? Are these people <laughs> yeah. that? like vapid and yeah. vastly out of their minds to reality that they follow this person? And the answer is yes. Unfortunately, yeah. and scarily, the answer is yes. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But like, dude, you, I could talk to you for freaking 10 hours. <laughs> and I, I need you to come back from the Antarctica trip so we can talk some more. Roger that, brother. That. <laughs> but l- lastly, I want you to talk about uh, uh, two things. The, the Antarctica trip really quickly, like, everybody that you're listening that, that's listening don't take don't take any of this lightly just like put yourself in this scenario and realize what akshay is about to go do this is no joke this isn't walking through the appalachian trail in the winter time this is like this isn't alaska this is antarctica and it's like dude just describe that like you were describing to me so like just tell everybody the this thing that you're going to do yeah so the, the one I'm doing this year or the, the, the next year or both? Well, it, both, but really next year is the big Okay. Uh, so next year is the one I'm training for. The one, or next year is the, yeah, I'm, I'm going to Antarctica in six days to do a 30 to 40 day expedition to the South Pole where I'll be walking where only 49 human beings have ever gone. This time I'll be with the team. It's a very intense expedition in its own right. Uh, Antarctica is without a doubt one of the most unforgiving, hostile, inhospitable environments on the face of the planet. The polar storms are horrific. There's crevasses that can kill you. There's bitter cold where it, if you take if it in, in a windstorm, if you show your skin for seconds, you'll get frostbite. So this year I'm going for 30 to 40 days, skiing to the South Pole, followed immediately by a climb of Mount Vincent, which is the tallest mountain in Antarctica. And all of this is training for next year. Next year, what I'm doing is the big one. As you know, the next year's one, it'll be three and a half months. So 105 days skiing 1700 miles, completely alone, solo, across the entire continent of Antarctica. It'll be the first ever human-powered crossing of the continent. Mean human-powered meaning there's no dogs, no wind support. I'll be dragging my own sled, which will weigh about 400 pounds, with uh, three and a half months worth of food and supplies to survive out there 
to make the entire crossing. That will be the first ever crossing of the continent. I mean, you channeled, if anybody wants to talk about redirection, reframe, rechanneling, reestablishing context, you took your pain and went to a place that not only pushes you to an extreme, which is very inspiring, but I think that's the point is that with this story of, we call it triumph from where you were to where you are, like it's so inspiring to, to anybody who says, I'm down on my ass right now. I'm, I'm in the bottom of a bottle every day, or I'm down at the bottom of a, a pill case every day. And I don't know how to fucking do this. Like we literally described it today. And that, that literally you are one choice away from death or you're one choice away from having a mindset to where you can push yourself and, and like challenge yourself and embrace suffering to build up a, I don't know if a tolerance is the right word, but build up a tolerance to suffering where suffering is actually how you like embrace life because you know, this level of suffering that is deep and dark and shitty, but that just makes you enjoy life more. And I think that like the way that you spun that and reframe that is fucking gorgeous, man. It's beautiful. I can't wait for, for a follow-up interview after you just, even after you get back from Antarctica this time, I mean, this one will be intense even in its own right. Exactly. <laughs> you're not like, oh, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go like kind of dip my feet in the water. Like I'm going to stay for about <laughs> three nights and fly back out. 30, 40 days. I mean, dude, how do you, how are you going to practice? I do. I have a hundred questions for you, but you're, not, you're out of time. How are you going to practice being alone out there, knowing that no one comes for you? And, 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 in, and in the same capacity, knowing that, you're actually the safest you could be because no one can get you because nobody's there. There's no animals. It's just nature that can take your life at any time. Like you don't have the normal society. Like, Oh, someone could break into my house and kill me or steal some shit from me or an animal could come bite me, but nature may take you. Like how do you deal with the alone and the, uh, you know, that's, that's the stuff that I process. Like, Yeah. You know, I mean, spending like seven days in darkness was a good training ground for solitude. You're completely alone in a dark room. You have nowhere, not even like, forget about key completely alone. You're in dark room, meaning you have nowhere external for your consciousness to attach onto. Even if I'm alone here with light, I can sort of look at that wall and say, that's a wall. So I have external places for my mind to go in darkness. You don't. So the point of that is to say you train a solitude because you have to build a very loving, positive, empowering relationship with yourself which is ultimately the most important relationship that every single one of us has, right? The most, yeah. because that's the one relationship we can't escape. We're going to be with ourselves 24 seven all day, every day until death. So it's taken um, a lot of training to get to this point, to build that empowering relationship with myself that I, that I love who I am, you know, that, uh, that who I am today. And it wasn't always like this, of course. So that that's part of it. And, and then even training, you know, when I go out like the other day, I went out for eight hours of tire dragging, eight hours of dragging two heavy ass tires in the middle of the night. So I intentionally did it at night because there was nobody in the park. I was like at 2 AM or something, nobody in the park. And I wasn't listening to music or anything. So I'm just with my own thoughts. And it's a slow, tedious, mind numbingly fucking miserable exercise, (laughs) dragging tires. But by being with my thoughts, by being with myself, I'm training myself to navigate that in what will inevitably be the most 
demanding expedition of my life and stretching the very boundaries of human endurance. So to me, and a big reason why is also to navigate the solitude is to come closer to everybody's got their own version of what this word means, but to come closer to God, you know, and yeah. only in the complete silence of that, you, you get to experience the divine in a way that you can't anywhere else. Dude, that's so beautifully said. What, what, how do you, how are you going to top that? How are you going to push the threshold <laughs> even more? Is it the jungle? Is it like living underwater for a hundred days in the ocean? Like <laughs> that's what I was thinking about. And Aaron and I were going home that night. We had dinner with you, and I was like, "How is he going to top nice. that shit?" <laughs> Aaron said, "I don't know if he, I don't know if he needs to top it." And I said, no, "Dude, the way his brain processes, it's not a a one up thing. It's a well, what else is possible? Yeah, what else am I capable of?" And I think that's an entrepreneurial. Uh, uh, thought process, anything, anyway, totally. like, hmm, well, if I did that and I was scared of it, well, what, what about now? Yeah. So dude, I applaud you, man. I, I admire you. Like, I, I think you are a real Thanks, serious brother. man on purpose and, um, and tell everybody real quick where they can get your book, Fearvana and just whatever you want to say about it. And like, and then I'm going to, I'm going to put this episode through as fast as possible. Cause I want people <laughs> to hear this, man. This has been, this has been really eye opening. Honored brother. Uh, yeah. You can find me at fearvana.com. That's F E A R V A N A. I'm actually going to be having a live tracker on my expeditions. So you can kind of follow along. I have the whole darkness journal from my time at the darkness retreat up there as well. Uh, just oh, a nice. week ago, shared it very authentically and vulnerably. I was a little nervous about sharing it, but I hope it makes a difference. That's why I shared it. So you can find me at fearvana.com. Instagram is my most popular platform, fearvana. And the book is available on Amazon in Audible, Kindle, paperback. 100% of the profits go to charity. So we support survivors of sex trafficking to former child soldiers and many causes all over the globe. So all the profits in the book go to support many beautiful causes as well. Dude, this is, yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much for doing this so quickly, by the way, like we Thank squeezed you, you in before you left for Antarctica. I know. <laughs> I'm glad we got to connect before I know. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me, brother. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I wish you the absolute best on your journey this time. And I'll talk to you when you get back and for then sure. we'll prep for the, for the next big journey. But dude, they, just thank you so much for what you're doing for the world and like pushing yourself to encourage other men to not give up on, on this like beautiful life that they can be created mm -hmm. from the darkness that they're experiencing now. It's just a mm -hmm. really awesome thing you're doing, man. I support you hundred percent. Thank you so much, brother. Appreciate you, man. Yeah. All right, audience. Go rewind this one. Take more notes because I, I actually talk faster than I do. So. <laughs> I do talk fast, indeed. <laughs> um, everybody, I hope you enjoyed it. Go check out fearvana.com. Go to Akshay's uh, Instagram page at fearvana. Like this, this dude is super interesting. And if you if you uh, need some motivation, it will be it. So thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one.